All right, if you would take your Bibles and turn to Daniel chapter 7. I think I owe Jay Bruce some money, is that correct? Jay, is he here? Or is he hiding after he preached that? Oh, he is here, brother. Check is in the mail. Thank you very much. All right, let's look at, actually, we're going to be at Daniel 8. We're going to be at Daniel 8. Now, coaches like to test their players. We had one coach up here. I wish I would have played under him. Uh, But we have. You know, coaches like to test their players. Coaches of all stripes. They want to test their speed. They want to test their strength. They want to test their agility. And they want to test their endurance. Well, I had a particular football coach that liked to test mental and physical toughness. And what he used to do is he would take the football team into the gym and have us lay on our backs. And then he would ask us to, well, he didn't ask anything. He told us, raise your Raise your legs straight out six inches above the ground. Now, you know that drill is the six-inch drill. Six inches is what we call it. It's supposed to tighten the tummy muscles, you know, and it gets you up there. And you got to keep them straight. can't put your hands under you. You just have them up, legs straight as a board, six inches. Now, I thought he would tell us to lift them and then tell us to drop them and lift them, and we do repetitions. But, no, that's not what his plan was. His plan was raise them. And then he roared across the gym, how long can you hold on? And then he got out his stopwatch. Tick, 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 right? Now, you're deeply hurting, because I know some of you are. And there's a huge gap between experiencing God's care and his protection and his provision and his Warm love for you on one side and you're you're excruciating, almost unbearable pain on the other. A huge gap between these two. How long can you hold on? Now, you can't change people, can you? You can't change your spouse. You can't change your child, children. You know, you can't change your parents. You can't change your friends. You can't change people in the church. You can't change those people that you closely work with. And there are some people that you are around that are completely blind to their sin. They refuse to see their sin. In fact, when you approach them and talk to them about it, they deflect. They get more mad. And they blame you and they blame other people and they blame situations and circumstances. You can't change people. And when you're around them, they bother you and it's hard to love them if you're honest, right? How long can you hold on? How long can you hold on? You can't control stressful, suffering situations that hit you hard and knock you down to your knees. You lose a a loved one. The world beats on you. Persecution for standing strong in the gospel of grace comes at you. Ridicule, slander, your reputation, yada, yada. You lose your job. You have days or you have seasons of unexpected despair and discouragement. Kind of the nameless kind. Sometimes it's situational. You know what those are. And you can kind of lean against them and weather that storm. But it's the one that comes in and you don't know where it came from and it just sits. 
like a storm that drops its rain and never leaves. Spiritual assaults from the evil one assail you. You have physical changes in your body. Your body wears down. It starts hurting. And then you get ailments and diseases and cancers. And these stressful situations, what do they seek to do? They seek to capsize you. They seek to try to overturn your trust in God, to, to not trust Him, instead trust in other things. Or it seeks to capsize you and to cause you to doubt that God's good and that He's actually for you. And then you start struggling with the pull to want to pursue things that promise to be good for you. That promise and beckon, I'll be good to you if He isn't. They cause you to crave when you get in these suffering situations and seasons. They cause you to crave relief, to crave escape, don't they? It's like when you're in them, you crave and you're just propelled to just seek any type of relief anywhere. And so you pursue these false sources of trust and happiness and goodness and help. How long can you hold on? Daniel chapter 8 gets out the stopwatch. Click. How long can you hold on? Please stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to look at verses 1 through 14 next week. We'll, on Easter, yes, we will be in Daniel 8. We will do 15 to the end of the chapter. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me in Daniel. Daniel, after which had appeared to me at first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the capital, which is in the province of Elam. And when I saw in the vision that I was in the Ulai Canal, I raised my eyes and saw, and behold. I mean, I go over and over again. Saw, saw, see, see, behold. A ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other. And the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward, and no beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased, and he became great. Now, as I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which had been standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and stuck or struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he was cast down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong and that great horn was broken, and instead of... Instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns that toward the four winds of heaven. Now, out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, toward the glorious land. It grew great, even to the host of heaven. And some of the host and some of the stars it threw to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. Who is that? And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over it together and the regular burnt offering because of the transgression. And it will throw the truth to the ground and it will act and prosper. 
Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Father, we thank you for your word. And we say collectively, not to us, not to us be the glory, but to you alone. And we thank you that we can begin to say that only because of Jesus. And now by your spirit, Lord, we're a mixed bag. Conflicting motives, conflicting thoughts, conflicting feelings. And this is a special day. A day you move into the conflicting areas of our life. And put us back together again. So, oh Lord, would you open our eyes. Open our hearts. By the power of your Spirit. To the glory of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, my passionate purpose in preaching, in other words, my call from God is to take any given passage that we are in and to display the glories of Christ with a view to him being worshipped, resulting in life change. Do you get the order? My call given from God is wherever we find ourselves is to display the glories of Christ with a view to him being worshipped, held on to by faith. The result, the fruit, is life change. What that means is, is that only the beauty of Christ can reach the bottom depths of your soul, change its nature, and lead to further transformation. Only the beauty of Christ can do that. Okay? Now, I want to say the law cannot do that. The law cannot do that. The law is powerless to justify us. The law is powerless to reach the bottom depths of our heart, change its nature, and lead and enable further transformation. The law is not the power of God to do that. The gospel is. Now, biblical principles and exhortations cannot do this. Biblical principles and exhortations are good things. It's a good thing to be instructed. You know, if you really do believe the gospel, this is what it looks like, husbands. This is what it looks like, wives. This is what it looks like, civil servants. This is what it looks like when someone sins against you. This is what it looks like when you come together in Lord's Day worship. This is what it looks like. Instructions are great, so do not misunderstand me. Instructions are wonderful. But biblical principles, the law, exhortations, they do not contain within themselves the power to do them. Only the gospel does. Only the glories of Christ do. So, 
Do you really believe that? Do we as a church really believe that? Are we, are we still trying to live the Christian life, still trying to grow in Christian maturity, still trying to be a man and a husband, still trying to change our life by powerless lists instead of the power of God's grace? The law instructs. It has no power. The gospel is the power of God. Now, that's part of my call, right? As Jay reminded everyone last week, right? Now, to display the glories of Christ in the passage of hand. Now, remember, the call of the minister is that all the scripture is Christian scripture. Jesus himself tells us that the only way you are to see your Bible rightly, the only way you're to interpret it rightly, the only way you're to apply it rightly, the only way you're to theologize it rightly, the only way you're to teach and preach it rightly is if you get me in the center of it. Because it all points to me and it all flows from me. So my responsibility is to display the glories of Christ in the passage at hand. Did you find him in here while we were reading it? It's my job to give them to you. Now, the passage at hand is unique. We've talked about apocalyptic literature and how the Bible is, as we were looking at this morning in Christian ed, if the Bible contains truth or the gospel and it contains uh, law that flows from the gospel, it contains it's like water, but this water's in a different bucket in different parts of Scripture. So when we're in apocalyptic literature, we're reminded that The water of the truth is communicated through pictures, vivid pictures and images. I saw, I saw, I saw, behold, I saw, behold. How many countless times is that said in this chapter? Now, remember, for New Testament letters, the the buckets, propositions, raw propositions, you know, the good grammar stuff, the main ideas, dependent ideas, lexical words, syntax, all that good God is in the grammar stuff. If you're in narrative literature, what's the bucket? Stories, characters, setting, plot, storyline. If you're in poetry and wisdom literature, what's the bucket? Poetry, things like parallelism, repetition, hymn forms. You get the picture. Now, if we ignore the form, if we ignore the bucket, we will misinterpret, we will misread, we will mistheologize, we will dishonor God and sour our souls in muddled, weird stuff. Okay? Now, there's one thing new that we have to learn about apocalyptic literature this morning that comes in this passage that we've got to get down or we just might miss. The intended meaning. What is it? Here it is. The pictures of apocalyptic literature are clear and unclear at the same time. Clear and unclear at the same time. Now, those of you that wear glasses, you know exactly what I mean, especially on Friday. You're out in the rain. You're in a thunderstorm. You've got streaks flowing of water running down your glasses. You've got smears from your fingers or your shirt trying to rub off the glasses. You've got bubbles from big drops on your glasses and you see a 
uh, mosquito that's about three feet over here and, and you see your spouse over here that, you know what I mean, right? Clear and unclear at the same time. Well, when you get to the beastly pictures of these animals, the ram, the goat, and then how about that number? 2,300 evenings and mornings. When you get there, these pictures are clear and unclear at the same time. For example, the beasts here in Daniel are clear. Look at verses 20 and 21. In the interpretation, as for the ram you saw, two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. And Persia is greater than the other one. It's taller, bigger. And the goat's the king of Greece. Okay. And the great horn between his eyes is the first king. Oh, we know who that is. Alexander the Great. Right? And then you go down and we've got four other horns that arise out of the first broken horn. So scholars are practically unanimous on the clarity of the pictures here. The clear part. So Persia and Greece first. The great horn is Alexander the Great. The four horns are Alexander's four powerful generals. They were called the Diadochi. You know, it has that that Lord of the Ring, Dark Rider feel to it. The Diadoshi. Shoom. Here they come. One of them was called, in Egypt, was Ptolemy. The other one was Seleucus. In Syria, Lysimachus, Thrace, Cassander, and Macedonia in Greece. And then the little horn that comes 200 years after the four great generals. 200 years. Daniel 11 actually deals with that time frame in here. But 200 years, boop, there's this little horn. And this little horn is a, is a guy named King Antiochus IV. He's a Seleucid king. He was a great troublemaker for God's people, for Israel. He did things that made an Israelite stomach turn. Horrible things. But now there's also aspects of the ram, the goat, and the numbers that are unclear. For instance, the little horn. Do you know how the little horn was treated in chapter 7? The little horn was actually something that didn't just stop at Antiochus. It actually is representing some persecuting state power that happens to God's people all the way to the end. And then at the end of the chapter, the little horns talked about in Daniel. And you know what happens there? The little horn in Daniel at that point is even fused to the horizon of the final end time. So do you see what's happening here? An apocalyptic literature is clear and unclear at the same time. The reason why it's giving you a picture of a big truth. But the picture of the big truth is reapplied throughout history. To the very end. That means we misread our Bible in Daniel and Revelation if we push and pinpoint these pictures as only applying to the final end times. To specific people, specific events, and specific situations. The Bible will not let us do that. Jesus will not let us do that. No one knows, Jesus says. No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven. And this ought to take your breath away. Not even the Son.
knows that day. But boy, how many of us know that day? All right, I'm done with that. Let's move to the guts of Daniel 8. Are you ready? Let's move to Daniel 8. All right, two years after the vision in Daniel 7. So we're in Daniel 8. Now, this is two years. Now, we're back in Babylon. Remember, we we seem to have moved into Darius and Persia with the lion's den, but now we're back to Babylon because the Bible is not so concerned with going in a chronological order. And we need to remember that, too. The Bible organizes itself around theology. Theology. The Bible is a theological history book. Not raw chronological data. It's an interpretive history. It's a real history, but it's God's history, so it's a theological history. God says, here are the events, these events happen, but let me tell you what they mean because you can't figure them out. It's called revelation, right? So here we have two years after the first vision. The da- no, I say this is now Daniel's second vision. Daniel is given another vision, and if I was Daniel, I would, at about 11 o'clock every night, I'd start drinking coffee, really strong coffee. I would start popping no-dos because it's not fun to go asleep if you're Daniel. You have terrifying visions when you go to sleep if you're Daniel, right? Well, by means of prophetic vision, which means not literally, if you look at the first three verses, he is, by prophetic vision, he's not literally in Susa. But by prophetic vision, he's transported to Susa, to the Alani Canal. Now, why is that location so significant? At this point in, in Babylon's empire, Susa is in the hitherlands. It's just a dot on the map. It's, it's the wild country. It's stuff that is out where the barbarians are. It's outside the civilized Babylonian civilization. So why? Because within a couple years, that's where Persian kings will sit and winter. Because Babylon will be a rusty memory. Because kingdoms come and kingdoms go. Right? Now, the vision that Daniel's given is very terrifying. Look at 827. 827. And I, Daniel, was overcome, and I lay sick for some days. Then I rose, and I went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. All right, 827. That word appalled is the same word in verse 13. Let's find it in verse 13. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes, there's the word, desolate. Appalled and desolate are the same thing. Daniel was in emotionally, he was in an emotionally desolate state. He was so distressed that he lay in bed for several days ill. Physically, emotionally ill. And there was nothing spiritually wrong with Daniel. We need to make that point clearly. Daniel's not responding in unbelief. He's not in sin when he's feeling this way. 
he's actually in a godly state. A spiritual state. In other words, Daniel's distress was because the world is not the way it's supposed to be. And his response was right. Daniel is more godly, he's more real, he's more authentic, he's more genuine than we are. We smile too much when we should be ill more. The world is not the way it's supposed to be. You don't have to pretend it is. You don't have to pretend that you are. You don't have to pretend that your relationships are. You could be ill and it be holy. Now, what's so fascinating about this vision is Daniel isn't the only one seeing it as it unfolds, is he? I mean, we're looking at it, we're looking at the vision, and we're thinking it's Daniel and us. And we're enjoying the pictures, and we're kind of a little confused, and all of a sudden, you get to 13, and I heard a holy one speaking. And it's almost, if, if we didn't know, Daniel must have jumped. <laughs> I didn't know I was, I mean, he thought he was the only one. There are these celestial beings watching this vision unfold as Daniel's watching it. They're called angels. Otherworldly creatures. Incredibly beautiful and glorious. That circle and surround the throne. The invisible heavens. And most commentators, commentators, the good ones, are quick to point out the close connection between Daniel and angels throughout Daniel. And notice when we were in Revelation, there was this close connection between God's people and angels. It was almost like there was this fusion or this mixing or this connectedness between angels and this other invisible world. And that's because the theology of the Bible is this, that all creation involves an invisible heavens and a visible earth. When God created, he created an invisible realm and a visible realm. And they're so they're distinct, but they're so closely related because they're both parts of creation. We tend to think of the invisible realm as like make believe Tolkien stuff. The invisible realm is just as real as this. And it's all around us. And this invisible creatures are just as appalled at the vision as Daniel. Because these celestial beings also know this ain't the way it's supposed to be. And so one of them asks the other, how long is it going to be this way? How long must these saints hold on? Click. This is the big idea of this passage. Chapter 8's dominant idea. The big idea is how long must you hold on? That's the dominant thought. How long must we all hold on in a situation, in a world in which it's not the way it's supposed to be? How long must we? 
Now, there are two applications here that I want to tease out in the remainder of our time. Two applications that are embedded or hidden just in the question itself. What we'll do next week at Easter is we're actually going to look at the answer that the angels give. That that number. We're going to look at the number. And when we look at the number, we're going to tease out the applications or the implications that come from the answer to us in real time. But right now, I want us to look at the applications, the implications that flow from how long must you hold on? The first one's embedded in the question itself. The first the first application is why the question is asked in the first place. How long can you hold on presupposes that the world's not the way it's supposed to be. It presupposes that you're not the way you're supposed to be. Your relationships are not the way they're supposed to be. Last Friday, I watched, along with 1,500 others, a young wife and her three young children bury their beloved husband and their beloved father. He was an RUF campus minister at TCU. His name was Dustin Salter. He was a bright, shining minister of the gospel. He was a shepherd of college students. He was trained. He was gifted. He was used greatly for God's glory and for God's kingdom, as the 1500 attested to. And then a freak bike accident four months ago led to the day on Friday. And I'm sure that when I saw his mom and dad, I thought, along with everyone else in there, they were thinking, as every one of us were thinking, This is not the way it's supposed to be. Rocky theology is right sometimes. You know what Rocky theology is? If you don't, where have you been the past 30 years? There's been six of them. Rocky's son tells his dad that living with you, dad, this prize fighter, Rocky Balboa, is very difficult. He said, Dad, your shadow is too big for me. And here's where Rocky theology comes in. Rocky says, let me tell you, son, something you already know. The world sticks a finger in your eye. The world ain't all sunshine and rainbows. It's a very mean and nasty place. And I don't care how tough you are. It will beat you to your knees and keep you there permanently if you let it. You, me, or nobody else is going to hit you as hard as life. How do we know that theology is true? Because sin has made certain of that. Sin has guaranteed the world is not the way it's supposed to be. The world is upside down. So because this is the case, there's two things this passage is calling us to do. This passage is calling us to repent. And I know that's one of those That's one of those unpopular words today in the church. I'm supposed to think of another word because that's supposed to drive you away. 
Repent is a biblical word. Repent is a historical word. The word repent means to turn away from trusting something and turn to trusting something else. Do you see the picture? So to repent is to say, I'm going to turn away from hanging on to this. I'm going to turn away from holding on to this to be my life, my good, my salvation, my rest, my refuge, my happiness, my joy, my peace, my comfort. I'm going to turn away from this and I'm going to turn to something else. That's what repentance is. And the thing that we need to repent of here that I think that this passage is calling us to repent of, given the fact the world's not the way it's supposed to be. We need to repent of our soft way of living. And I go, oh, great. He's going he's gonna to whip me about TV, going to the movies, eating out. No, I'm not. Because I watch TV and I go to the movies and I eat out. That's not where we're going. That's usually where we go, isn't it? Because that's a little, even though it's hard to hear, it's a little more manageable. Turn off your TV fast and go to G movies. Or don't go at all. Now, what I mean is, this means repent of believing that God owes me happiness on my terms. That's a tough one. We need to repent of believing that God owes me happiness on my terms. That's a little different. Does He promise to make us happy? Yes. Yes, he does. Does it look like my terms? Sometimes. When your terms are aligned with his. In other words, if you begin to understand that that suffering is a pathway to expanding your joy in him and getting rid of things that you cling to and refining your relationships with others, then yes, You're on his terms. But if you think that suffering is a bad thing and you want to avoid at all costs and uh, you induce yourself with other things to numb yourself to your suffering, then no, it's on your terms. See the difference? And this also means we're still unrepent of our soft way of living. This also means repent of making an idol out of avoiding pain and conflict. In other words, we make idol out of avoiding pain and conflict, spiritually, relationally, physically. We do so to such an extent that you can see the thorns in your life in this way. You neglect what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to have some leadership and responsibility. You're supposed to be faithful and work hard. But because I, I don't want pain and I don't want conflict in all these areas of my life, I abdicate. It's too painful. Abdicate. I just looked at the time, so we have to move on. This means repent of refusing to get back up by trusting God when you get knocked down. When we get knocked down, that's not the issue. Rocky theology got that straight. Because he said to his son, you're going to get knocked down. It's going to stick a finger in your eye. It's going to hurt. 
But if you refuse to get back up, you're hoping in a soft way of living. When we begin to trust God, we start getting back up again and we stand up again and we get hit again and we stand up again. We get hit again. And that's why the book of Ephesians ends with this incredible imperative. Stand. Just stand. In the grace of God. Pain, yes. Hurt, yes. Discouragement, yes. Seasons of suffering, yes. Off the wall feelings, of course, yes. Despair without God? No. Suffering without God? Never. Staying down? Never. We also must repent at our shock at sin. So here are the two things. We're called to repent. Let's repent of our soft way of living. Let's repent at our shock at sin. And what we mean by that is in ourselves and in others. In ourselves, we need to repent of thinking we're better than we are. In other words, there's this tendency and this propensity in all of us to trust in our own goodness to such an extent that we actually think that we can arrive at a certain state, even in our sanctification, even in God cleaning us up and making some progress in our growth and grace, that we actually think we can stand on our goodness apart from the grace of God and in desperate need of the grace of God 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, and every year of the rest of your life, you are in desperately desperately needy of the grace of God. And we go through life at times actually thinking that we can get good to where we don't need the grace of God, especially when we start thinking things like, well, at least I'm not as bad as that person. I'm not like her. Thank the Lord. Right? And this also means repent of pursuing only relationships that are conflict-free. In other words, we're so shocked at sin that we can't handle conflict in relationships. And so we pursue conflict-free relationships. There are none in the Bible. There are none. Conflict is actually the way that God grows relationships. Boy, howdy. Who wants that? There's no such thing as conflict-free relationships in biblical Christianity. So who do you turn to? This is where we have to end. So we've got to turn from something, but we've got to turn to someone. We've got to turn to Daniel 7. So let's flip over to Daniel 7. We look at 13 and 14. At Daniel 7, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and the glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Remember, chapter seven is the hinge of the whole book, theologically, structurally. Remember, chapter seven sits between the stories one through six and the visions eight through twelve. Chapter seven sits in the middle. It's the hinge. It holds the whole book together. You don't have the book of Daniel without chapter 7. And dead center in chapter 7 is the Son of Man. The one who makes things the way they're supposed to be. Daniel is seeing the one called the Son of Man or the Savior King 
who makes it the way it's supposed to be. And then some 500 years later, the one that Daniel sees is riding on a donkey into Jerusalem. And he's saying to himself, I have one more act of obedience, and it's done. The work of the cross. And when he finishes that act, the angels will turn to them and they will say, here's the answer to your question, right? Now, Matthew and Luke tell us that when he approached on this donkey into Jerusalem, that they shouted throughout Jerusalem. Everyone was screaming throughout Jerusalem. Here he comes. The words quickly spread. People were running to the streets to see him. People lined the streets, children, parents, adults, men, women, children, everyone straining at the neck just to see him, craning, pressing into each other, body upon body. And it happened instinctively. When the first group of the crowd saw him instinctively, they ripped open their outer garments, threw them at his feet to walk on, just like a king. When he kept coming, they cut down branches, threw them before him to mark his way with glory and honor, just like a king. And the religious leaders came up to Jesus and they came up to his disciples and they said, make them stop. Make them stop. And what did Jesus say? If I do, the stones will take their place. Because not only is Daniel waiting, not only is the invisible heavens waiting, but all of creation is waiting and asking, including the stones, how long will this take? How long must we hold on? And when Jesus comes, it's over. So what we have here is Jesus says, I'll tell you that if you are silent, these stones will cry out. In Jesus, the wait is over. The answer is given. The way it's supposed to be is begun. So what that means is we need to turn away from trusting our soft way of living, our shock with sin, and we need to turn to and trust the Son of Man. And we need to trust Him in real time, trust Him right now that He is the one that makes all things new. And He's begun to make things the way they're supposed to be. But just like things being clear, things are also unclear. So in one sense, it's begun to be the way it's supposed to be. But in another sense, we're still waiting for it to be the way it's supposed to be. So right now, what I want you to do, how do you trust Him? You talk to Him. You talk to Him in real time right now. And you talk to Him and you admit your need for Him. And you admit... That in Him is the way things are supposed to be. And that He'll give you the grace to continue to hold on. Until it's done completely. Amen.